the 11th chapter, the book of Romans, the 11th chapter. This is our 72nd lesson out of the book of Romans. That is 7 and 2, number 72. Amen. We've been in this for a while. As a matter of fact, we started this series in the fall of 2013. And so uh, the, the, the fact is, if you do the math, that doesn't add up. That's because I don't teach every Sunday morning. <laughs> Uh, we have guest speakers, we have special services, we have a lot. In the month of August, we don't have a Sunday morning at all for an entire month in the course of a year. So uh, that's the reason why we're only on 17, but we've been in it for over two and a half years, amen? And so uh, today, we're on, we're on number 72. We will conclude uh, the book of, our, of the chapter, uh, 11th chapter, where we've been now for some time. Uh, the passage we're going to take starts in verse 26, ends with verse 36, and it is a longer passage than I normally deal with. And the reason why I'm going to take such a long passage, 10 verses, is because this, this passage contains both the conclusion of the three chapters that deal with the nation of Israel, chapter 9, 10, and 11, that we've been on for a long while, and it also contains, at the end of it, a doxology or a hymn of praise to God. And so I'm going to cover both sections this, this morning. The main reason for doing that is if I broke them in half, the second section, the hymn of praise, would be a really, really short lesson. Uh, and so we're going to try to hit them both together. I don't think it'll be real lengthy this morning, even though it does look like a tremendous amount of material to cover, and some of you know I can take two verses and preach all night long. So I, I promise not to do that. I'm going to take ten verses and preach all day long. Amen? We're going to hit the ground running. Let's start with it. Romans chapter 11. I'm going to read the whole thing. If you'll stand for the reading of the word, and then we'll come back and I'll break it down. Romans chapter 11, verses 26 through 36 say, And so all Israel shall be saved. As is written, there shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. For the gifts and the callings of God are without repentance." For as ye in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief, even so have these also now not believed, that through your mercy they, may, they also may obtain mercy. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief, that he might have mercy upon all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? Who hath first given to him? And it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. And would you say amen? Amen. Would you pray with me, Lord Jesus? We love you. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy as we take the time this morning to open the Word of God. I'm asking, Lord, you let it speak into our hearts and our lives. Let it touch us and let it change us that we'd never be the same again. In Jesus' name, and you may be seated. So way back at verse 26, it begins this way. This is the conclusion of uh, the section dealing with 
the Jewish nation as a whole. And, and Paul says, and so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. So it is fitting that this, this section that deals with the Jewish nation ends with a statement regarding Israel's national salvation. That's important to understand that this passage is dealing with the nation of Israel as a whole, and it's not dealing with individual Jews. And we've had to make that distinction as we've moved through uh, chapters Eight, or chapters 9, 10, and 11, because chapter 9 dealt with the nation as a whole, and chapter 10 dealt with individual Jews and their status and how uh, they can be lost or saved. And then we've been back to dealing with the nation as a whole again in chapter 11. And, it, and, and that's important because uh, what we're saying here is it's prophesied God's going to save Israel. And, and we have to understand that individual salvation is always predicated on your belief and obedience to the Word of God. It's not the individual salvation is not determined by a, a prophetic promise. Amen. There is a part of that, that an impetus that rests with you. You have to respond. Amen. God can say that he's going to bless you and he will bless you. Amen. And he can declare what he's going to do and he will do it. But salvation rests. God has opened the invitation to whosoever will. Anybody can be saved, but not everybody will be saved. Amen. The impetus rests with you to hear, to receive the word, to believe the word and to obey the word. It takes faith and obedience. So God has promised salvation to all. Amen. But that promise is not binding on everybody because not everybody will do the things that are required will believe and obey the Word of God. Amen. It's a promise to whosoever will, and those who will, will believe, and they will obey. And in their belief and obedience, they will receive salvation. This scripture, however, tells us that God's going to save the nation of Israel arbitrarily. This nation is going to be restored back to the favor of God. That's not salvation. That's a restoration back to the favor of God. That's a restoration back into the plan and purpose of God for the nation. That's an end-time event. It has been prophetically declared by God in the Word of God, and it will come to pass because His Word is forever settled. It doesn't change. When God says it, He's going to do it. Amen. And He will bring the nation of Israel back into a place of favor. That does not mean the whole nation will be saved. Amen. The salvation will still be an individual thing. You'll have to believe and you'll have to obey, amen, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the nation as a whole is going to be, at some point, God turns back to the nation of Israel that has fallen out of favor and restores them back to favor. You want to learn more about that? Come on Wednesday nights. Amen. Plug for the end time series. Praise the Lord. The word for deliverer in this verse is a Hebrew word that means to save, to rescue, or deliver, is a word that is often translated as redeemer. And that is very important because the redeemer, that the original prophecy, this is actually quoting from the book of Isaiah, uh, the redeemer that the original prophecy referred to 
was God, Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. But here, once again, and I point this out every time we come to it in Scripture, in a display of the oneness view of the New Testament church, Paul uses that Scripture that undoubtedly refers to the Father God of the Old Testament as an equivalent Scripture that refers to Jesus Christ, the true Redeemer who has come to take away the sins of the whole world. Amen. I point that out every time we see it because Paul is not afraid to take verses out of the Old Testament that refer to God and apply them to Jesus Christ without apology. As far as Paul is concerned, Jesus is God. Amen. There is no difference there. In his mind, there is no division there. He doesn't mind at all to take a scripture that says God will do and relate that to Jesus Christ has done it. Because as far as he is concerned, Jesus is God. Amen. Verse 27 says, For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. So the covenant of God was a promise to take away sins. And that covenant is not fulfilled in the Old Testament. That covenant doesn't find uh, its completion anywhere in the pages and the prophecies and the law uh, in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, sins are rolled ahead every year. In the Old Testament, David would say, My sin is constantly before me. God doesn't take it away. He rolls it ahead. It's covered with blood and it's pushed ahead for another year and another priest will stand in the holy place and he'll offer another sacrifice and that sacrifice will take care of me for a year but I've got to come back and I've got to revisit it in a year. Why? Because the blood of bulls and goats and lambs, that doesn't have the power to take away sin. It's in the New Testament where Jesus Christ becomes the redeemer that Isaiah was talking about. It is in the New Testament where Jesus Christ becomes the Lamb of God. John said it. John the Baptist standing on the banks of the river where he would baptize Jesus Christ. Uh, he said, here comes the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the whole world. He's quoting the same verse, the same passage, reaching back to the same prophecy. This is Jesus Christ. He's the one that has come to take away their sins. Amen? So God's promise is to take away the sins of the whole world. The covenant, I will take away your sins, is conditional. Every individual has to hear and respond to the gospel in faith, obeying the word of God in order to realize the personal benefit of the covenant and see that it come to pass in their lives that their, their sins would be taken away. Amen? It's a personal thing. It's something you have to do for yourself. It is promised, I'm going to take away the sins of the whole world. God said he was going to do it, and God did it. He came, he robed himself in flesh, he became a man as a lamb of God. He died on a cross, he took away the sins of the whole world, right? But not everybody is saved. Why? Because that covenant is conditional, just like Abraham's covenant was conditional. Amen? God enters covenant with Abraham. God entered covenant with the people of Israel after Abraham, made covenants with them concerning the promised land. I'm going to give you this land. It's going to be yours. You didn't build the houses. You didn't plant the fields, but you're going to live in the houses, and you're going to harvest the fields that you didn't plant. You're going to have all of these blessings, but you have to follow me. Don't put any other gods before me. Don't mix your faith with the faith of the heathen that are around you. And whenever they did those things that God told them not to do, what happened? 
He allowed these invading armies to come in and take them out of the land of their promise. Why? The covenant is conditional. Amen? Every covenant God made with man, it's a conditional covenant. God says, I will, but you have to. Amen? I'm going to require something of you. I'm going to require, in this case, uh, the, the covenant I will take away your sins requires faith first. You've got to believe that there is a God and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him and obedience to the word of God. Faith always produces obedience. Amen? So although Jesus has fulfilled that promise, that covenant, to take away the sins of the world, the world can only see salvation if it acts upon that covenant. Amen? If it fulfills what that covenant requires. Amen? Verse 28, now we kind of change gears. Speaking of the Jews, as concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. They is the Jews. You are the Gentiles, just to put the verse in context. So concerning the gospel, the Jews are enemies for the Gentiles' sakes. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. The Father's, if you notice the word Father's is plural and the word sakes is plural. That is referring to the patriarchs, Abraham, uh, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs of the Old Testament, for their sake, God made a covenant with them, said, I'm going to preserve your seed. And for their sake, the nation of Israel is beloved by God. Amen? Not for the sake of this backslidden nation now, but for the sake of the fathers that, that God made a covenant with concerning the national status. So this verse and the verse that's going to follow it demonstrate the faithfulness of God in spite of human failures. Uh, the Jews, he says, are now the enemies of God. They, they are now uh, separated from God. And the church, they're, they're separated from God and they're separated from the church. They're your enemies too, he says, because they have rejected the gospel. Now, that word enemy speaks of an attitude of hostility and hatred. It is not directed at uh, the sinners, it's not, it's not the sinners' hostility towards God, although they have to have been hostile towards God to reject the salvation he offered. But that's not the hostility we're talking about. We're not talking about they have made themselves the enemy of God. We're talking about God's hostility towards the sinners because they have rejected them. He has shown them his enmity. He has shown them his hostility. He has, so it comes, and you don't really think about it that way. You think about, well, if you reject God, then you, you know, you thumbed your nose at God, but God still loves you, and, and he does. And God still loves the Jews. They're, they're beloved. But at the same time they're beloved, they're the enemies of God. Why? Because they've rejected him. Because they've walked away from him. Because they've walked away from his promise. So it's God's hostility towards the sinners. And in the middle of that, Paul makes a point. And this is a point that the whole chapter 11 has been about this solid point, this singular point, and he never ceases to remind the Gentiles God's hostility towards the Jews has been the occasion that has brought the gospel to the Gentiles. So he says the Jews are enemies, but they're enemies for your sake. They're enemies in order to open the kingdom of God to you. 
God has, when, when they've turned their back on God, God has opened the door to you and allowed you to come into this kingdom. Amen. They've forsaken their blessing and their promise, and God has given that blessing and that promise to you. But and remember, a lot of this has been about don't be high-minded as Gentiles. Just because you're in the church now doesn't mean you're favored over the Jews. We said this earlier. What happened to the Jews can happen to you too. And so Paul quickly points out, they may be the enemies of God, but in spite of the present breach that exists between them and God, the Jews are beloved of God because of the promises that he made to their forefathers. Even though the hardened Jews have chosen to become God's enemies, they've rejected the gospel, God still loves them. Now there's power there. You could settle right there and preach all day long because the devil loves to tell you you messed up you've made a mistake you rejected you're the enemy of God God doesn't love you I'm going to tell you something even when you are the enemy of God and that's what the scripture said even when you are the enemy of God God still loves you. Even whenever you take the matters in your own hands and you go off and, and you're, you're, you're doing your own thing and you turn your back on God and you forsake every blessing and every promise of God, you, you will never outrun the love of God. God still loves you. Amen. He will never turn his love away from you. Even if he you come to the place that final judgment is poured out and he condemns your soul for eternity, he'll still love you. Amen? The next verse gives some explanation of that. Verse 29. For the gifts and callings of God are without repentance. That the word repentance means not to be it means not to be regretted or not to be repented of. The gifts and the callings of God are not to be regretted by God. God never withdraws his gifts and his callings. He never changes his mind concerning his plan. God will not revoke his call. The invitation stands. Now, we may invalidate it by our actions. We may remove ourselves from the place where God can bring that plan to pass in our lives, but God hasn't changed his mind. It is us who have changed our mind. When God called you, he called you according to his purpose. When God called you, he called you according to his plan. And God gives gifts and he gives callings both to individuals and to nations. And God doesn't go back on those things. God doesn't repent of those things. God doesn't regret those things. When God gives a call or God gives a gift, you can count on it. You can take it to the bank. God's going to stand by what God has done. Amen? Individuals may disqualify themselves. The nation may go away from God and may walk away from the calling and the plan and the purpose of God. We may, through our own unbelief and disobedience, we may put ourselves in a place where that, that call doesn't come to pass or that gifting doesn't come into operation in our life, but that doesn't change what God did. 
When God called you, he knew who you were. When God called you, he knew your limitations. When God called you, he knew the inconsistencies in your life. And God's not going to repent for having called you. God's never going to regret the fact that he called you. He knew exactly what he was doing. And regardless of your response now, or regardless of your response then, or regardless of your response somewhere in the future, God will never regret the fact that he has extended the invitation. He has called you to be a part of his purpose. He has called you to be a part of his plan. He has given you divine anointing, divine purpose for your life, and he's never going to come back and say, I repent of the fact that I called you. Now, you may, you may walk away from it, but you're never going to get to the place where God says, I'm sorry that I called that individual. I'm sorry that I reached out for that individual. Amen. And, and I, I will promise you this. When you find yourself in a place that you're willing to turn your heart back to God, you'll find that he's always there, amen. And that calling, it hasn't died, amen. That gifting, it hasn't gone away. Now, it may operate in a different way. You may have put yourself in a place where uh, perhaps pulpit ministry is, is now out of the question because of actions you've taken and legal things that have happened or whatever. But you'll find that calling is still in operation. And God knew when he called you. You understand the foreknowledge of God? God knew when he called you that that calling may not come to pass the way you thought it originally would. But if you turn your heart back to him, you'll find the plan, the purpose, and the giftings and the callings of God. They're still there. They don't go away. And he's still reaching for you to step into that role that he's called you to. He's still reaching for you to fulfill his great purpose and his great plan for your world. Listen, you, you think that when you failed, it surprised God? It didn't. Amen. You think that whenever you, you made your mistakes or, you, or your, your, your inconsistencies overtook you or your faith was weak, that it surprised God? It didn't. He knew when he, listen, the, the glorious foreknowledge of God is beyond our understanding, but he knew. He knew before he, he knows the Bible said he knows the end from the beginning when he called you when he extended the invitation come and be a part of the kingdom of God come and be a part of the plan and purpose of God he already knew the end of the story brother Donnie he knows how it all plays out didn't stop him from calling you that's why he can take man's mistakes and man's failures and man's grievous errors and graft them right into his will and his purpose. And we look back and we say, my goodness, but God in his mercy has allowed me to step back into a role of ministry or purpose in my life. And, and the truth is God knew when he called you the first time that that, that was going to be the ministry and purpose you were going to finally discover. Amen. The gifting and the calling of God, it is without repentance. God will never step back and say, I, I regret the, that individual. They did something I didn't anticipate. They did something I didn't expect. Think about it, friend. He knows the end from the beginning. When he called you, he knew where you would be right now. He knew what you would face right now. And he still called you. He still reached out to you. He still extended the invitation to you. Come and be a part of my plan. Come and let me anoint your life. 
come and be a vessel that I can use to show forth my glory and my honor and my power in your life. Surrender to me and let me show you what I can do with your life. I'm thankful that the callings of God are without repentance. Amen. I'm thankful that God doesn't regret the giftings that he gives even whenever we are not faithful to him. Amen. Verse 30 and 31, I'll take them together. It says this, For as ye in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief. So the ye is the Gentiles. Times past is when they were heathens. And now is present. And the there is the Jews. So it says, For as ye the Gentiles in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through the unbelief of the Jews. Even so, have these also, the Jews, not believed that through your mercy, that's the Gentiles, they, that's the Jews, may also obtain mercy. So you were not a believer in times past, but now you have obtained mercy through their unbelief. And that hasn't happened as an end unto itself, but it's happened because now through your mercy, those that presently don't believe are going to obtain the mercy of God through the mercy that God's shown you. These two verses work together to offer proof of, of Israel's coming national uh, restoration based on God's mercy. The Gentiles who now enjoy salvation were once disobedient to God. They they once were heathens. They once they didn't even know God. They were not a people. They didn't know anything about God. They didn't even try to worship God. Remember we said in a few chapters ago they didn't they didn't even pursue God. You know they weren't even in the race and they won it. They didn't even try to find God and they found him. They, they were not a people, but they became the people of God, and, and they didn't deserve salvation. They didn't earn salvation. There wasn't any history. The Jews have all this history. They've got Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They've got the patriarchs. They've got Moses. They've got the Exodus. They've got, they've got all the law, and they've got all that history and the prophets. They've got all of that. The Gentiles don't have any of that. But the Gentiles who didn't deserve salvation, they obtained it. They got it. They received it. And God used the Jews to bring that to them. The Jews in their rejection of God, they opened the door for the Gentiles. The, 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 the apostle Paul, he'd go to preach in a city and he'd go first to the synagogue and he'd preach to the Jews and the Jews wouldn't hear him. So what did he do? He went to the Gentiles and he preached Jesus Christ to the Gentiles and the Gentiles received it. And so he said, through their unbelief, God's opened a door for you. you. You were not a people. You didn't deserve it. But God used the Jews to bring salvation to you. And he said, now the Jews don't deserve it. Now the Jews have rejected God. But God's going to use you to bring salvation to them. Amen. So the disobedient Jews are going to receive mercy through the mercy that is now bestowed on the believing Gentiles. That sentence sums up everything in chapter 11. God intended the salvation of the Jews, remember, to provoke uh, salvation of the Gentiles to provoke jealousy 
among the Jews. Remember, we talked about this at length. This is the thesis of chapter 11. This, is the, this, this statement sums up all of chapter 11. God has poured out his blessings on the Gentile bride, amen, in an effort to provoke the Jews to jealousy, to cause them to recognize what they've lost. Uh, and so just as the rejection of the Jews resulted in the salvation of the Gentiles, now the salvation of the Gentiles is intended to result in the salvation of the Jews. Amen. It's going to compel them to recognize what they've lost. Verse 32 says, For God hath concluded them all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. I, I love these little phrases that make absolutely no sense in the English language as we read it today. Made perfect sense when it was translated hundreds of years ago. But that, that word, uh, God has concluded them all in unbelief. The word translated concluded literally means to enclose, to confine, to shut up, or, or to imprison. And what this verse is telling us is that no one deserves salvation. God has recognized that everyone is disobedient. None of us is inherently righteous. And, and God has all men confined together in a prison of disobedience. That's what that, that phrase means in the Hebrew or in the Greek. It refers to God's decision to give them over to their sinful desires, to let them follow the whim of their flesh and their heart. God has not restrained men from sin. And he hasn't caused them to sin, but he hasn't restrained them from sin. He's allowed men of their own free will to do what they wanted to do. And men without fail have imprisoned themselves in sin. And so God has confined them to the condition that they have chosen for themselves. All have sinned. And all have come short of the glory of God. But that's not the end of the story. Amen. God has confined them all in the prison of their unbelief that he might have mercy on them all. His plan is not just to allow men to live in the prison of their own decision, to live in the prison that they have built with their own choices, but rather to have mercy on all who will have faith in Jesus Christ, will obey the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Now, here's the caveat. All are imprisoned. But not all will experience mercy. All are imprisoned in their unbelief. But not everybody will experience the salvation that Jesus brought. The impetus to receive the mercy of God is in our hands. He has called. He has extended the invitation. He has done that without regret. Amen. He has done that without repentance. But we have to act on his call. God has provided a way of escape from the prison of sin that we have put ourselves in. We built our own prison with our own actions. We did it to ourselves. We got here by our own hand. We deserve this. And he has made a way of escape for us. But we have to believe and we have to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Now, the next passage, the next portion of this chapter is the final passage of the three chapters that deal with 
the nation of Israel. And what it is is a doxology as Paul considers the, the great plan of God that has unfolded throughout the history of humanity, how God has worked out his perfect plan for both Jews and Gentiles. Paul can't help but break forth in a song of praise. He can't help but just begin to magnify God. The very writing of these words was an act of worship. It's what the scholars call a doxology or a hymn of praise. It's, it's just Paul in the middle of writing this letter. He stops and says, you know, I've got to praise God. Amen. I see now. I see the grace of God at work through the centuries. I see the hand of God. I see how that God has taken the nation of Israel and, and through that nation he's brought salvation to the Gentiles. I see now how he's using the Gentiles to bring salvation back to the Jews and it's such a wonderful thing. I just got to stop and praise him because no matter what man does, no matter what we do, God always has a plan that compensates for our shortcomings. God always has a plan that compensates for our failures. Amen. The nation of Israel has turned its back on God. But that didn't take God by surprise. God said, I'm going to use that to bring salvation to the whole world, and then I'm going to use that to bring salvation back to the Jews. Amen. And so Paul says, I stand amazed. I stand amazed at the hand of God and the way God works through history. The Gentiles, they've experienced revival and God's using that to, to bring revival back to the Jews. The Jews, they rejected God, but God used that to bring revival to the Gentiles. And he's made a way in spite of man's limitations, in spite of man's shortcomings, in spite of the fact that we failed him over and over and over again. He made a way of mercy and he made a way of grace and he he made a way for me to be grafted back into his plan. And so Paul said, I've got to praise him. This is Paul. He, 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 he who persecuted the church. This is Paul who stood on the Damascus Road and heard God say, he said, who are you? And he said, I am. What did he say? I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. Wait a minute. Paul, Paul, first of all, that voice from heaven has to be God. Second of all, what he was persecuting was the church. Jesus was dead. In the frame of Paul's experience, there's no way Jesus is talking. But that light from heaven shines and the voice of God says, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. And Paul realizes two things. First of all, Jesus is God. Second of all, the church is the body of Christ. That that I'm persecuting, that's Jesus Christ. Amen. This church is precious. And so this is Paul who can stand now and say, the same salvation I see worked out among the Jews and the Gentiles. I see how when I was running from God, when I was doing what I thought I was righteous and doing, the grace of God reached down and got a hold of me. And in a single moment, changed my thinking about everything. In a single moment, I realized who God is. I realized who Jesus is. I realized who the church is. Amen. And so these are his words of praise, beginning in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. The text reads in a way that seems as if Paul is speaking of two things that amaze him about God. And that's unfortunate because if you go back and you read it in the original language, the grammar 
uh, is consistent with the idea that there are three things here that Paul expresses wonder at. And those three things are repeated again in the following verses, not two. And so the three things are this, the riches of God, the wisdom of God, and the knowledge of God. And the word depth refers to the inexhaustible fullness of those three things. The idea is that God is a bottomless, infinite resource the depth of riches, wisdom, and knowledge. Paul marvels at the riches of God. That's a reference to spiritual riches, not earthly riches. Now, he may own the cattle on a thousand hills and, and all of that, and, 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 and in earthly wealth, he is immeasurable, but we're not talking about earthly wealth. We're talking about the riches of salvation, amen, and his riches, the riches of the plan of God, the riches of the goodness of God, the gifts of God, the callings of God. Those things are unsearchable. They are unknowable. They are beyond our comprehension as Paul looks at how the grace of God has worked through the centuries to bring about this wonderful plan of salvation. He says, all the riches of, of God are, are beyond my comprehension. Then he marvels at the depth of God's wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to choose the best possible end, to choose the best possible means of achieving that end, amen, to make the right choice, to set things in the right direction, to bring about a, a successful conclusion. And Paul probably has in mind the specific wisdom that God has demonstrated in the way that he worked out the salvation of mankind, especially the way that he worked out the, the salvation of both the Jews and the Gentiles to help each other come into the salvation that God has for the whole world. And so he looks at how God has used the Jews to bring about Gentile salvation, how he's using the, the Gentiles to bring about Jewish salvation. He wonders at the wisdom of God. Then he extols the depth of God's knowledge. God's knowledge is his constant, comprehensive, immediate consciousness or awareness of all things without limit of time. He knows the end from the beginning. When the Jews rejected him, he already knew how he was going to bring that rejection back around to their salvation. They didn't know it. Paul didn't know it. But God knew it. That's the knowledge of God. It is far beyond our comprehension. We could get lost. We could wonder for hours and hours and hours in trying to explain the foreknowledge of God. And how do you test Job if you already know how Job is going to respond? Uh, preachers have debated those things for centuries. We could, we could wander around forever in the knowledge of God. And you know what? We've come to the same conclusion that Paul came to. I don't understand it. I can't grasp it. It's beyond me. But I have to stand back and worship the depth of the knowledge of God. I have to step back and say, amen, I don't get it. But God's knowledge uh, is worthy of praise. The latter half of the verse contains or continues the same thing. God's his, it says how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. God's decisions, his reasons, his methods are totally beyond, beyond man's 
comprehension, unsearchable, conveys the idea, idea of being unfathomable or incomprehensible. We, we, can't, we can't comprehend it. You, know, you, you don't understand infinity. I don't understand infinity. We don't understand eternity. We, we, can't, we can't even, it boggles the mind to try to fathom the far reaches of space and try to, to determine, you know, consider where that ends or, or how long eternity is. There's just no, there's no concept within our mind that can grasp eternity. And that's what Paul's saying, the, the, the plan of God, the thinking of God, the, the reasons and the methods of God, they're incomprehensible. I'm not made to be able to grasp that. He uses this phrase, past finding out. That's a real neat phrase. It has to do with being able to track something. And just bear with me for a minute. What Paul's saying is that God's ways are they're untraceable. Linsky says that what Paul means is that even when we know what God has done, we can't track his course. We can't follow his footsteps. We can't find his trail. We could never have seen in advance what he was going to do. And even knowing what he's done, we will never be able to understand what he plans to do next. You know, you, you, you hunters will, will remember or realize this. You know, you go into the woods and, and you find the tracks of a deer or a raccoon. You can pretty well determine where he came from and where he's going from the tracks. And you may even be able to determine some things about how big he is or, or, or some information just from the tracks that he leaves behind. Well, Paul said, God, don't leave any tracks behind. I, I can see what he's done, but I can't even tell where he came from, and I can't tell where he's going. I, I can't discern. It is absolutely beyond me even to begin to comprehend him. There's just nothing there that I can judge God by. We, we, can't, we can't track him. He defies our logic. He's beyond our understanding. We can comprehend what he has done, but we'll never be able to understand how he did it or even why he did it. Think about the incarnation. Think about God becomes a man. God lowers himself, humbles himself. He, 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 he takes himself and brings himself down lower than the angels. And he becomes a man. He condescends to the place of humanity. And he does it to die at the hands of hateful, arrogant, pride-filled men who will not appreciate what he has done. We can look at the cross and we can see what God has done, but we can't understand it. We can't fathom it. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't work out in our minds. And we'll never understand how he done it. How does God become a man? How does deity become humanity? The scholars today still argue the finer points of, of the incarnation. How does God take a body for himself? We'll never understand how and we'll never understand why. But we'll always be able to see what. How great he is by what he has done. The, the psalmist said this. He said, who is man? That God is mindful of him. We'll never understand. We'll never be able to grasp that. His ways are beyond our ways. His thoughts are beyond our thoughts. His, his plan and his purpose is beyond our comprehension. All we can do is step back and, and worship him. That's why we worship him. That's why we trust him. Because his ways, they're, they're beyond our ways. 
I don't understand in the moment. I can't, Brother Donnie, sometimes I look around, I can't find the tracks that got me to where I am. And I can't find the tracks of where, uh, the Bible doesn't say he shows me the highway. It says he shows me my next step. That's it. I don't have any promise of what tomorrow holds. I just know where I've got to step next. I just know what I'm doing next. And this is the foundation of trust in God. The foundation of trust is everything that he does is good. Everything that he does is for my good. Everything that he does gives him glory and blesses me. He works all things together for good. I'll never understand it. All I can do is praise him. I'll never be able to reason it out. All I can do is praise him. Amen. I'll take verses 34 and 35 together. It says this. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him? And it shall be recompensed unto him again. I mentioned that those three things would show up again. And here they are. It's very likely that the three questions in this passage correspond in reverse order to the three elements in the first verse of this doxology. Who has known the mind of the Lord? That refers to the knowledge of God. No one can fathom the mind of God, or who has been his counselor, that refers to the wisdom of God. A counselor is one who gives advice, and listen, I I know you think you need to advise God, but God doesn't need your advice. God doesn't need your instruction. He doesn't need anyone to, to tell him what to do. He doesn't have to ask anyone for help. Even the third question is who has ever given to God that God should repay him. That corresponds to the depths of God's riches. God does not need anything from anyone. And God will never be put in the place where he owes us anything. You're never going to get God indebted to you. Amen. Here's the crux of the matter. When it comes to God, we all stand on equal footing. There's no big me and little you. There's no individual that's exalted above any other. In the presence of God, we are all beggars. In the presence of God, we all hold out empty hands. None of us can offer to God anything that God needs. None of us can offer to God anything that will add to God. All we can do is hold our hands and receive from Him. The gifts that he gives to us. When we stand in his presence. Old J.T. Pugh used to say the ground at the foot of the cross is level ground. We all stand in the same place. All of us are sinners. All of us have fallen and come short of the glory of God. And none of us has any good thing to offer to God. We stand and we receive the good thing that God gives to us that we do not deserve. Amen. Finally, verse 36. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. So this verse begins with three phrases. Of him, through him, and to him. Those three faces, phrases define God's relationship to all things. All things have their source in Him. 
All things are sustained by him. And all things serve his purpose. He relates to all things as their source. He is their originator. He is their creator. They come from him. Amen. He, he relates to all things as the means by which they come into existence. They remain in existence. They, they exist through him. Everything in creation is either of him or is through him. Amen. All things. He relates to them as being created by him and sustained by him. And then he relates to all things as the goal or the purpose for which they exist. So all things are made by him. All things are sustained by him. And all things exist for his glory. All things. All things exist for his good pleasure. God relates to everything in the world as being of him, through him, and to him. It is all for him. Everything that exists glorifies God. And so Paul ends chapter 11 with the final word of praise. To whom be glory forever. Amen. To God belongs all glory through all of eternity. Amen. And, and having today taken the time to, to read and marvel at the words of Paul, how can you not just want to lift your hand and say, Lord, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for the great love of God that would reach down and get a hold of me. I, I marvel today at the incredible plan and purpose of God, at how he brings his will to pass, sometimes even in spite of my failure, sometimes even in spite of my shortcomings. As you stand with me, Paul has, he's looked at the larger plan of God and, and how God has worked among the nations. And he has seen how that God created opportunities for individuals to find salvation in every era of time. God has extended his grace to both the Jews and the Gentiles. And, and Paul has marveled at the way that God has done this. But he's also marveled at the way that God has brought about salvation and calling and purpose for every individual. The gifts and the callings of God. Paul has told us they are without repentance. Though we make mistakes, though we may have gotten completely sidetracked, though we may have gone off the rails, as it were, messed up the whole thing. God's plan and God's purpose, it includes, it includes your failure. It includes your shortcoming. It includes the little side trip that you made. The reason behind his calling is still there. The purpose behind his calling is still there. And God's never going to step back and say, I'm sorry that I called that individual. I'm sorry that I've reached out to that individual. God didn't make a mistake. Listen, you need to tell yourself, I'm not a mistake. I'm not a mistake. I've made mistakes. But God didn't make a mistake. He called me. And he's still calling me. He knew exactly what he was doing when he spoke his word into my life. He knew exactly what he was getting when he called me. I may have surprised myself, but I've not surprised God. I may have come short of my own expectations... I may have disappointed myself and those around me. But God knew when he called me. 
He knew where I would be right now. And that calling, that gifting, that invitation to be a part of his plan and his purpose, he hasn't retracted it. He hasn't taken it back. He hasn't withdrawn it from my life. It's still there. This morning, the impetus rests with you and it rests with me. When we turn our heart towards God and we, we completely surrender our will to him, he stands ready to completely fulfill the plan and the purpose to which he has called us. He stands ready even now, even with the, the water that's under the bridge, even with the road that lies behind you, he stands ready right now to bring his calling, his purpose, and his plan to pass in your life. Make no mistake about it, there's nobody under the sound of my voice that's excluded from this. God has a plan for your life. God has a purpose for you. The main question this morning has nothing to do with God's plan because God's plan will not change. The main question has to do with your response to God's plan. The gifts and the callings of God are without repentance. But for some of us, they require repentance on our part in order for us to activate them in our lives. For some of us, though God will never repent for having called us, we need to repent for having been unfaithful to that call. See, the question is not whether or not God's going to walk away. The question is, what will we do? God is not going to repent. His hand is still extended. The question is, will you repent? And will you reach out and get a hold of that hand? And say, Lord, I want to fulfill your purpose. I want to fulfill your calling. I believe, God, that you were there in every moment of my life. I believe, God, that you knew me for what I was when you called me. Lord, I recognize that mistakes and failures and faults and shortcomings and all those things I'm going to have to work through and overcome and, and that, that I may have made things more difficult for myself than they had to be. But I recognize the calling of God is still rich and it's still real. And I'm willing this morning to bend my knee and bow my head and answer that call. I say yes, Lord. Whatever it is that you desire, Lord, wherever it is you want to take me, God, whatever it is you want to bring to pass in my life, I'll say yes, Lord. I wonder if there's somebody under the sound of my voice this morning that you would pray that simple, humble prayer in the presence of God. If you find a place in an altar, if you'd bend your knee and bow your head, and if you'd tell him, Lord Jesus. It's not a question of if the call is still there. I know it's there. Lord, I want to accept it in my life. I want to become what you called me to be. I want to do what you told me to do. I want to follow you. I don't have to know, God, where this road leads. I just have to know, God, that I'm following you. I don't have to know, God, I don't have to see the tracks. I don't have to have the understanding. I don't have to know where it comes from and where it goes. I just have to know, God, that I'm in your hands. I'm willing to surrender to you, God. 
I'm willing to surrender my heart to you, Lord. I'm willing to surrender my future to you, Lord. I'm willing to surrender my ways and my purpose and my plan to your ways and your purpose and your plan. Would you answer the call of God this morning? Would you answer that sweet, sweet voice of the anointing of God that's flowing through this place right now? It's reaching for somebody under the sound of my voice today. Would you tell him, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord.